In Noah's day, there was a door. It was a mighty door that being opened, no man could shut. But being shut, no man could open. It was a portal to life, though crude in a sophisticated world that was doomed to destruction. Now the door was straight and it stood in a narrow way. Few chose to walk in that way and enter in through the door. Have you ever wondered how many people did not enter and perished in the flood? Now we know that there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. How many descendants did they have? If you lived for a thousand years, how many children would you have had? In the 1950s, the average reproduction rate worldwide was five children per family. In the 1800s, it was six to seven children. But go back further and you'll find even higher reproduction rates. We read in Judges 8.30 that Gideon had three score and ten sons. Judges 12.8.9, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Second Chronicles 11.21, Rehoboam begat 20 and 8 sons and three score daughters. Second Chronicles 13.21, Abijah begat 20 and 2 sons and 16 daughters. Judges 12.13, Abdon the son of Hillel judged Israel and he had 40 sons. And 2 Kings 10.1, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Even allowing for much slower reproductive cycles, it would be certainly possible to have at least one child every 10 years. So that if you lived for a thousand years, you would have a hundred children. Let's say instead that they only had one child every 80 years to produce a total of 12 children on average per couple. This would have resulted in a total of 23 million people alive on the earth at the time of the flood. But that number is way too low. A more likely estimate is that an average couple had at least one child every 50 years to make a total of 20 children each. That would have meant over 2 billion people alive at the time of the flood. However, according to Jewish legend, we're told that Adam and Eve had one child every 30 years, a total of 32 children. If that was typical for that time, the earth would have been teeming with 145 billion people alive at the time of the flood. Even in a near-perfect world, that was a vast population compared to today. And Jesus said of them in Matthew 24, 37, But as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now some may infer from these words that the civilization before the flood was not ecologically sustainable. That the global food supply may have been threatened by overpopulation and overconsumption. Was man's lack of concern 
for the conservation of the planet, the reeds in the world before the flood perished? Did God destroy them that destroy the earth? Certainly man was derelict in his stewardship, but it was not greenhouse gas pollution and habitat destruction that caused the first great extinction of all living things. It was the unrestrained moral pollution that arose when the descendants of Seth intermingled with the descendants of Cain and eradicated the distinction between that holy line that preserved the knowledge of God and those that hated him. God was compelled to destroy that wicked generation whose imagination was evil continuously to save the one remaining righteous man and his family. Similarly, the coming second great extinction of life on earth will not be because carbon dioxide has increased by 0.002% per year, nor because of the destruction of some habitats, but because a mushroom cloud of immorality and injustice is overspreading the earth and eradicating the few pockets where justice, reason and the knowledge of God still exist in the world. God will again be forced to destroy this generation to save a righteous few. <coughs> now while God must destroy the earth to save man from sin, man at the same time desperately seeks to save the earth in order to continue in sin. Is it any surprise that the conservation movement arose about the same time as the widespread rise in immorality, spiritualism, drug use and selfish indulgence of the 1960s and 70s? There are two paths in this world. One seeks to escape the world and the corruption that is in it, while the other seeks to conserve this world so as to perpetuate the corruptions practised within it. Story of Jesus, page 180. The people of Noah's day abused the gifts of God. The eating and drinking led to gluttony and drunkenness. The world today has gone far, far beyond the eating and drinking of the antediluvian world. Since the 1970s, obesity has risen sharply. Today there is a pandemic of obesity that no one talks about. Between one-third to one-quarter of the people in the Western world today are obese. One in ten, that's ten percent of all deaths in the USA, are directly due to obesity. And that is 300 times higher than the death rate due to COVID. If we include drug-related deaths, including tobacco, and overconsumption accounts for one-third of all deaths, However, rather than practising individual self-control, the proposed solution for sustainability is a combination of coercive social credit system and engineered food shortages in the short term until the current efforts to depopulate the earth begin to take effect. Then we have the problem of marriage. Men and women today not only marry and are given into marriage, but they divorce and remarry many, many times over. And that is only considering those that actually formally marry. Manuscript releases, volume 7, page 419. Very plainly Christ saw what the condition of society would be in the future. He saw that self-indulgence would control men and women. What of the marriage relation today? 
Is it not perverted and defiled, made even as it was in Noah's day? Divorce after divorce is recorded in the daily papers. This is the marriage of which Christ speaks when he said that before the flood they were marrying and giving into marriage. Here the world has also gone far, far beyond that of the antediluvians. Men now marry men. Women marry women. It has now gotten to the point where educated people in responsible positions are unable to say what a woman is. And parents virtue signal their wokeness by having their children medically mutilated into transsexual fashion accessories. Yet, promoting unrestrained corruption is not enough. It must be imposed upon all nations and people by force of law. Those in positions of power seek to normalise these abominations by familiarising little children with them and prosecuting all those that speak against it. Again, there are two paths. The popular, politically correct way of cheering the abolition of all morality and virtue that results in public acclaim. And then there is the narrow path of God's word that results in being cancelled from society. Genesis 6.11 says the earth was also corrupted before God and the earth was filled with violence. And Bible Commentary, Volume 1, page 1090, says the land was filled with violence. War, crime, murder was the order of the day. Just so will it be before Christ's second coming. Today, the world is again filled with violence. But not just violence against a man's body or against man's possessions and property, but violence against his freedoms, against his rights, against his conscience. Is it, not, it is not just physical violence, but violence of every kind, psychological, economic, legal. It includes all use of force and means of coercion to oppress others. Petrarch's and Prophets, page 91, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. The wickedness of men was open and daring. Justice was trampled in the dust, and the cries of the oppressed reached unto heaven. Injustice has again filled the earth. People have been forced out of their livelihoods, forced to be locked up in their homes, forced to undergo mass medical experiments against their wills, forced to lie to promote official narratives, forcibly denied the right to travel or congregate, forcibly prohibited from buying or selling. As the world more broadly follows the path of coercion, the path of individual freedom is narrowed. And then we read in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 64. But if there was one sin above another that called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God proposed to destroy by a flood that powerful long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. As in Noah's day, the image of God is again being erased from man, one injection at a time. And he's causing mayhem everywhere. It was 49 years ago that the first genetically modified organism was created when genetic material was transferred from a monkey virus to a bacterial virus, launching what we now call genetic engineering. 
The next year, 1974, the first transgenic animal was created by inserting part of a virus DNA into a mouse. Since then, fish genes have been inserted into tomatoes, human genes into mice and pigs, and much, much more. The first attempt to modify human DNA was performed in 1980, and viruses have been engineered specifically to modify your DNA. GMOs are now everywhere, from the supermarket shelf to out in the wild and in biological weapons. Since the dangers of genetic modification are unknown, many have avoided the consumption and use of GMO products. Yet, over the last two years, hundreds of millions have subjected themselves to experimental mRNA injections containing DNA fragments from monkeys and snakes. These injections have been shown to be able to modify your own DNA via a process known as reverse transcription. That is, the result to some degree in the amalgamation of man and beast. They defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Every cell in your body contains God's signature, his mark, the sign of his handiwork. Today that name is being genetically scratched out and inscribed with the mark of the beast. Transhumanist dream of erasing from man the image of God and replacing it with an improved image, part beast, part cyborg. The first step in achieving that dream has now been taken. There are now two paths before us, a narrow way wherein are those that retain the image of God and the other way filled with transhuman amalgamations of man and beast. Yet God's grace still abounds for those that have been deceived into defacing the image of God within themselves. He does not wish that any should perish, but that they should come to repentance while there is still time. They have not yet received the mark of the beast, but unless they repent, they will receive it when its time comes. What was the reason that powerful race that lived before the flood amalgamated themselves with beast? Were they coerced? Or did they do it willingly? What fables were told to induce the people to corrupt themselves before God? Was it to save themselves from some pandemic? Or to become transhuman supermen? Whatever the reason, those that did so out of fear for their lives show that their trust was not in God but in man. And those that feared of losing their ambitions or standing in the world reveal their avarice and their pride. They selfishly corrupted themselves before God and he destroyed them. Like then, only a few today have sufficient love for God and faith in him to risk all in going against the tide of corruption in the world. The majority have chosen the easy popular way that promises to the wicked prosperity, peace and safety. In walking the narrow way, Noah was hated of all nations for speaking the truth and standing for what is right. Noah did what was right before God and let the consequences, whatever they may be, fall where they may. Claiming that the science was settled and that a flood was impossible, 
The wicked ridiculed Noah as a climate uniformity denier, a spreader of disinformation. He was no doubt of accused of being unloving, stubborn, selfish, misguided and cancelled from society because of his intolerance of immorality and gluttony, because he dissented against the amalgamation of man and beast and because he did not justify violence as a legitimate means for achieving social justice nor coercion for attaining the common good. The more we consider the days of Noah, the more and more we see our own day. Can you picture yourself living in that age of eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage? An age of genetic tinkering? As fascinating as the modern parallels of our time to Noah's day are, the only one thing that is really important to know is that out of that vast, vast population, all but eight souls perished. What are the numerical odds that had you been alive then, you would have been on the ark when the door was shut? Signs of the Times, January 3, 1878, of that vast population, there was only eight persons who believed the message of Noah and obeyed God's word. In the world today, the majority choose the broad road to death because the way of life is too narrow for them to walk in with their dishonesty, their avarice, pride and iniquity. Now, as in the days of Noah, the overwhelming majority are opposed to the saving truth and are fascinated with lying fables. Yet, this sermon is not about cursing the darkness. It is not about denouncing the evils of the broad way that leads to destruction. It's about the perils of the narrow way that leads to life. For 400 years, Noah called that vast population to come out of the world and to walk the narrow way that leadeth to life. Not all rejected his message. Some gladly heard him and joined with him in building the ark. It must have been many hundreds or even thousands that came out of the world and supported Noah. These were those that had not believed the lying fables. They had not amalgamated themselves with beasts. That had not personally been steeped in immorality, nor in drunkenness, nor in gluttony. They avoided evil and sought the good. They claimed to walk the narrow way. We are not told how many believed Noah. Yet how many of these were found inside the ark when its mighty door was sealed shut by the unseen angel? Manuscript releases, volume 18, page 261. There are those who will be like the men and women who helped to build the ark. They hear the truth. They have every advantage. Yet, although they act a part in the preparation of the truth that is to fit our people to stand in the day of the Lord, they will perish in the general ruin like Noah's carpenters who helped to build the ark. Why was that? Why is it that those that accepted Noah's message of salvation and came out of the world were lost? You know there is a name for those who have been called out, 
those who have come out. It's the Greek word ecclesia, which means in English church. Why is it that the entire church of that day except Noah and his family perished in the flood? Had they not accepted the truth? Had they not helped build the ark? Had they not endured scorn and ridicule with Noah? Weren't they walking the narrow way which leadeth to life? Many today, like Noah's helpers, may not be physically immoral or drunken, but they are blind drunk on false theology and in spiritual adultery. They walk in the narrow way, but at the same time they seek public applause, political compromises, maintaining appearances. They value the things of this world. They put afar off the end of the way. They set their affections on the things of earth and make common cause with worshippers of nature, ecological idolaters. They support injustice under the guise of social justice. They seek their own safety and comfort by denying the individual freedoms of others. They accommodate abomination and sin under the guise of love. They seek to safeguard government subsidies and funding by sacrificing principles and compromise with sin. They seek to avoid being ridiculed. They don't want to give up their worldly ambitions, their friends, their goods, their lifestyles. They don't want to give up their diets, their fashions, their music, their social media followers, their pharmaceutical drugs, their idols, their life of ease. They help Noah with one hand, but help themselves with the other. They want to enjoy this world and have heaven too. They are in the narrow way, but are not going from earth to heaven. They walk in the opposite direction, from earth to hell. You see, the narrow way is not a one-way street. It can just as surely lead to death as it leads to life. We see this more clearly in the experience of the Israelites. When the Lord called Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land, He led them along a perilous way. Deuteronomy 8.15 Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. But it was not just the natural perils and many privations that made the way narrow, but powerful enemies and mighty kings such as Sahon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, who fought against them. Yet Christ led them along the way with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm. He divided the Red Sea. He overthrew Pharaoh and his armies in the sea. He fed his people in the wilderness and smote great kings and delivered them from all their enemies. Yet in spite of all this, they refused to go forward and chose to retreat back to Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-5 Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat of the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them... God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown 
in the wilderness. How many? Of the three million people that left Egypt and walked in the narrow way, only two entered the promised land. I wonder, did those who perish along the way feel saved when they crossed the Red Sea? Did they feel saved when manna came down from heaven and fed them? Did they feel saved when water flowed from the rock? Did they feel saved when the Amorites were destroyed? They may have felt saved, but were they saved in the end? Why is it that of that entire church that was called out of Egypt, that were baptised in the sea and walked in the narrow way, less than one in a million entered Canaan? Jesus said, For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22:14. And Paul says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. There is another illustration in the Bible that helps us to understand this problem. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 5. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. This parable is not talking about those who don't know Christ. It's talking about those who have already been bidden to the feast, that have accepted the invitation. This is why the servants are first sent to tell them that have been called that the long-awaited feast is ready, that it is time for them to come. It is the cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. It is talking about those that are supposedly in the narrow way. Yet, when the time for the feast arrives, those that had reserved their places refused to come because the way forward is too narrow. They find it too restrictive and too difficult for their liking and they turn back. They want to attend the wedding feast but do not want to lose the things of this world. They want a way that allows them to claim to serve Christ while conforming to the world. And in verses 8 to 10, the parable continues, Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. So here we see that the narrow way is filled with both bad and good. When Jesus called Israel out of Egypt, he had not called just those who were worthy, but 
a mixed multitude. Exodus 12, 37-38 And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth and a mixed multitude went up also with them. Now there are many that walk the narrow way motivated by selfishness. They would have stayed in Egypt but there was no future there anymore. And so they were willing to set out in the hope of finding something better for themselves. Some, seeing their homes and lives ruined, hoped to find temporal blessings, prosperity and health along the way. Others are in the way because they do not want to part with the company and society of their friends or their relatives that are walking in the way. Others walk the way because it gives them a sense of moral superiority and self-righteousness. Others were just born along the way and don't know where else to go. All these that are in the way hoping to obtain some benefit to themselves were the first to complain when the way deprived them of their desires and the things that they were used to in the world. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-12, Now all these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You see, they clamoured for flesh meat. They wanted to have fun and enjoy themselves while being in the way. They followed the religious customs of the world, its music, its fornication, all while being in the way. They complained of the privations they had to make. But because the way was too narrow for them, they never made it very far along the way and died in the way, never obtaining life. Another illustration of the narrowness of the way was given by Andrew White and is found in Testimonies, Volume 2, page 594. She says, While at Battle Creek in August 1868, I dreamed of being with a large body of people. A portion of this assembly started out prepared to journey. We had heavily loaded wagons, and as we journeyed, the road seemed to ascend. On one side of this road was a deep precipice, on the other was a high, smooth white wall, like hard finish upon plastered rooms. As we journeyed on, the road grew narrower and steeper. In some places it seemed so very narrow that we concluded that we could go no longer with the loaded wagons. We then loosed them from the horses and took a portion of the luggage from the wagons and placed it upon the horses and journeyed on horseback. As we progressed, the path still continued to grow narrow. We were obliged to press close to the wall to save ourselves from falling off the narrow road down the steep precipice. As we did this, the luggage on the horses pressed against the wall and caused us to sway towards the precipice. 
We feared that we should fall and be dashed in pieces upon the rocks. We then cut the luggage from the horses and it fell over the precipice. We continued on horseback, greatly fearing, as we came to the narrow places in the road, that we should lose our balance and fall. At such times, a hand seems to take the bridle and guide us over the perilous way. As the path grew more narrow, we decided that we could no longer go with safety on horseback, and we left the horses and went on foot, in single file, one following in the footsteps of another. At this point, small cords were let down from the top of the pure white wall. These we eagerly grasped to aid us in keeping our balance upon the path. As we travelled, the cord moved along with us. The path finally became so narrow that we concluded that we could travel no more safely without our shoes. So we slipped them off our feet and went on some distance without them. Soon, it was decided that we could travel more safely without our stockings. These were removed, and we journeyed on with bare feet. We then thought of those who had not accustomed themselves to privations and hardships. Where were such now? They were not in the company. At every change, some were left behind, and those only remained who had accustomed themselves to endure hardships. The privations of the way only made these more eager to press on to the end. Our danger of falling from the pathway increased. We pressed close to the white wall, yet could not place our feet fully upon the path, for it was too narrow. We then suspended nearly our whole weight upon the cords, exclaiming, We have hold from above. We have hold from above. The same words were uttered by all the company in the narrow pathway. As we heard the sounds of mirth and revelry that seemed to come from the abyss below, we shuddered. We heard the profane oath, the vulgar jest, the low, vile songs. We heard the war song and the dance song. We heard instrumental music and loud laughter mingled with cursing and cries of anguish and bitter wailing and were more anxious than ever to keep upon the narrow, difficult way. Much of the time we were compelled to suspend our whole weight upon the cords, which increased in size as we progressed. I noticed that the beautiful white wall was stained with blood. It caused a feeling of regret to see the walls thus stained. This feeling, however, lasted but for a moment as I soon thought that it was all as it should be, those who were following after will know that others have passed the narrow, difficult way before them and will conclude that if others were able to pursue the onward course, they can do the same. And as the blood shall be pressed, and as the blood shall be pressed from the aching feet, they will not faint with discouragement. But seeing the blood upon the wall, they will know that others have endured the same pain. The first thing we note here about the narrow way is that it becomes narrower the further we travel and the harder it is. The luggage does not just symbolise our physical belongings, but our baggage of character, the burden of sin and self. Isaiah 58.6 Is not this the fast that I have chosen? 
to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, and that ye break every yoke. Not only does the baggage represent our cherished sins, such as our selfishness, our pride, our indulgence, intemperance, but also all of our self-righteous good works. Matthew 23, 1-3, Then spake Jesus unto the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seats, but do not ye after their works, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them upon men's shoulders. As God's people travel along the way, there is less and less room for self and its works, whether they be righteous or unrighteous works. Self must be gradually abandoned all along the way. The dream also tells us that those who refused to go further in the self-denying way did not fall off the path into the deep precipice, but instead were left behind, standing in the way. They do not abandon religion outright to join with the world, but they won't progress either. They become an obstacle, a stumbling block for those who follow behind them in the way. More than just a stumbling block, the parable of the wedding feast tells us that there were two classes of those who were unhappy with the narrowness of the way. One class who said, we cannot come, go their own ways to their farms and businesses. But there is another class that turned on those that asked them to keep moving forward. Matthew 22, 6-7 And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. Notice here that those that did not turn back but refused to progress in the way and spitefully treated God's servants are called the remnant. Who are these remnant? Who was it that Jesus spoke of when he said, John 16, 2, And they shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. Who was it that attempted to stone Joshua and Caleb? Who was it that sought to get rid of Moses and Aaron? Was it not those who claimed to be in the narrow way, who were journeying together with them? The narrow way may lead to life, but being in the narrow way, being in the remnant, is no guarantee that one will enter into life. It may instead result in eternal destruction, just as it did for Noah's helpers and for the three million people that left Egypt. Matthew 22:14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Have you considered what that means? 
that while many accept the call to walk in the narrow way, only a few of them are chosen? Jesus explained it a little better in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be that go therein, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus not only tells us that the way of life is narrow, but that somewhere along that way there is a gate. What is this straight gate? Many think that this gate is the entrance, is at the entrance to the narrow way, and that if you are in the way, the church, is because you have entered in through the straight gate. They think the gate is baptism. They think it is the door that was opened through the Red Sea through which the Israelites walked through on dry land. Was that the straight gate? Or was that just the beginning of the way? Now Paul tells us in Hebrews 3, 9-11, When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts. They have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. It was at the end that they did not enter. The straight gate is not baptism. It is not found at the beginning of the way. Few of those that walk in the way will enter the straight gate. Those who perished along the way without entering Canaan were no better off than those who perished in Egypt. The door of the ark did not exist when Noah began preaching, but at the end of his preaching. The ten virgins do not enter the door to the feast when they first take their lamps to wait for the bridegroom, but when their long wait has nearly ended. The gate is at the end of the way. No matter how far you have walked along the narrow way, unless you enter into the straight gate, walking in the way is of no value. This is brought out clearly in Alan White's dream of the narrow way. Let's continue reading, shall we, from where we left off. At length we came to a large chasm at which our path ended. There was nothing now to guide our feet, nothing upon which to rest them. Our whole reliance must be upon the cords, which had increased in size until they were as large as our bodies. He, we were for a time thrown into perplexity and distress. We inquired in fearful whispers, To what is the cord attached? My husband was just before me. Large drops of sweat were falling from his brow. The veins in his neck and temples were increased to double their usual size. And suppressed, agonising groans came from his lips. The sweat was dropping from my face and I felt such anguish as I had never felt before. A fearful struggle was before us. Should we fail here, all the difficulties of our journey would have been experienced for naught. Before us, on the other side of the chasm, was a beautiful field of green grass about six inches high. 
I could not see the sun, but bright, soft beams of light resembling fine gold and silver were resting upon this field. Nothing I had ever seen on earth could compare in beauty and glory to this field, but could we succeed in reaching it? Was the anxious inquiry. Should the cord break, we must perish. Again, in whispered anguish, the words were breathed, what holds the cord? For a moment, we hesitated to venture. Then we exclaimed, our only hope is to trust wholly to the cord. It has been our dependence all the difficult way. It shall not fail us now. Still, we were hesitating and distressed. The words were then spoken. God holds the cord. We need not fear. These words repeated by those behind us accompanied with, He will not fail us now. He has brought us thus far in safety. Here we see that the path, the narrow way, comes to an end before the journey's end. And a fearful test bars their way. The beginning of the way was relatively easy and became more and more difficult. But now the path is no more. And before them is a very straight gate. Would they dare to enter through this gate of anguish and distress or refuse to enter and have travelled the entire way for nothing? This gate is just before us. What then is the straight gate? In Noah's day it was the door to the ark that severed the life they knew from the life to come. Many believed Noah because they wanted to keep that door to life open. But when the door was ready, they would not let go of the life they knew. They believed but had no real faith. They loved the world more than they trusted God. They refused to enter into that experience with God that leaves behind the friendship, the support, the provisions of this world. They were prepared to walk the narrow way, but not to enter into the straight gate. You see, the straightness of the gate is not the same as the narrowness of the way. In the case of the Israelites, the gate was the Jordan River on the borders of Canaan. The Jordan severed the life they knew from the life to come. They wanted to enter Canaan, but they did not want to endure the hardships of meeting opposition or risk losing their lives at the hands of the giants. They also believed but had no real faith. They refused to cross over to a place that endangered their selfish interests, that might lead to their humiliation, that risked their safety. They were prepared to walk the narrow way but not enter the straight gate. The straightness of the gate is not the same as the narrowness of the way. Are you prepared right now to give up the life you know, the life you have, for the life to come? Then we have the parable of the wedding feast, where there was also a straight gate. Not all those who travelled the narrow way to the feast were able to enter. Matthew 22, 11 
And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man who had not on a wedding garment. Only those with the wedding garment, the robe of Christ's righteousness, could enter into the feast. Those who make the difficult journey along the narrow way without obtaining the wedding garment do so in vain. But how is this garment obtained? Christ's subject lessons 315. The man who came to the wedding feast without a wedding garment represents the condition of many in our world today. They profess to be Christians and lay claim to the blessings and privileges of the gospel. Yet they have never felt true repentance for sin. How many of those who travel along the way are doing so without the wedding garment? They walk in presumption, thinking their belief in the truth and their desire to enter life and the privations and parables they encounter along the way are sufficient to gain them entry. They are not walking in ever-deepening repentance. They do not see that there is a straight gate before them that only faith can open but only repentance can enter. True repentance can only be obtained by faith. It is not the outward abasement of self, but the inward abhorrence of self. It is the diametric opposite of self-idolatry. It mourns over the depravity of self. It turns away from everything in the world that uplifts, strengthens or gratifies self. It prefers to lose everything Goods, reputation, friends, family and even life itself in order to be free from self. True repentance is the only means by which those who are in the narrow way can enter in through the straight gate. Only those that have true repentance will be found with the wedding garment. Only they can enter the feast because only they can overcome self which is the root of all sin, as we are told in Testimonies, volume 9, page 27. Great Controversy 425, those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God in their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. But we cannot of ourselves overcome sin. We cannot make our robes spotless. We cannot purify our characters. None of our efforts along the narrow way can get us through the straight gate. We may have been in the narrow way all of our lives. We may have sacrificed, endured hardship and done many things to approach the city of God. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot of ourselves fabricate that wedding garment. The wedding garment is fabricated from true repentance and woven by faith. We can only obtain it as we plead without ceasing with God to give it to us. He says, ask and you shall receive. And Christ's Object Lessons, page 315 says, this robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. 
Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character and this character he offers to impart to us. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. Everything that we do of ourselves is defiled by sin. The five foolish virgins who had no oil could not enter into the door to the marriage feast because their hearts were devoid of the Holy Spirit whose main function is to bring us to repentance. Though they seek to enter the door, they will seek repentance too late and will not find it, though they seek for it carefully with tears, as did Esau. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 211. The class who do not feel grieved over their own spiritual declension will be left without the seal of God. The straight gate cannot be entered into without much anguish of soul, without agonised pleading with God to remove the last vestiges of self. Their desires, their ideas, their reputations, their identity, their self-confidence, their self-idolatry. Only those that are willing to let go of all of self can enter in through the straight gate. First Testimonies 187 says, God leads his people on step by step. He brings them up to different points calculated to manifest what is in the heart. Some endure at one point but fall off at the next. At every advanced point the heart is tested and tried a little closer. If the professed people of God find their hearts opposed to this straight work, it should convince them that they have a work to do to overcome if they would not be spewed out of the mouth of the Lord. Said the angel, God will bring his work closer and closer to test and prove every one of his people. Some are willing to receive one point, but when God brings them to another testing point, they shrink from it and stand back because they find that it strikes directly at some cherished idol. Here they have opportunity to see what is in their hearts that shuts out Jesus. They prize something higher than the truth, and their hearts are not prepared to receive Jesus. Individuals are tested and proven length of time to see if they will sacrifice their idols and heed the counsel of the true witness. If any will not be purified through obedience to the truth and overcome their selfishness, their pride and evil passions, the angels of God have their charge. They are joined to their idols. Let them alone. And what is the counsel of the true witness? Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 185. I saw the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. This testimony must work deep repentance, and all that receive it will obey it and be purified. Only through repentance can the gate be entered into and the soul be purified. Only through repentance can sin be overcome. Only through repentance can the latter rain be received. Only through repentance can man be fitted for translation. Faith opens the door, but repentance is that by which lays aside every reliance on self and clings to Christ alone as the means by which to enter therein. The narrow way is the way of the cross. And while we are told that Jesus trod the winepress alone, there was a vast multitude that followed him in the way. Some walked willingly, others reluctantly. 
Some walked out of love for Christ. Others were opposed or indifferent to Christ. Most that followed Christ were completely unaware that there was a straight gate at the end of the way and were unprepared to encounter it. It was a gate that revealed the secret things of the heart that demarcated the irreconcilable chasm between God and self, a gate through which only the selfless can enter. Following Christ were the soldiers who walked along the way because it was their duty to keep and enforce the law. The priests gleefully walked along behind them, hoping to establish their own righteousness, that they were God's appointed. The curious multitude also followed, hoping to derive some temporal benefit along the way, whether it was to gain the favour of the leaders or to be entertained and have something to gossip about. Many of these had shouted his praise just before at Christ's triumphal entry because it was popular to do so, but now they cried out, Crucify, crucify him. Against their will, there were two malefactors who also walked along the way. The first trying to escape death to self at every turn. The other resigned to the fact that self must die and deserved to die. Then there was a stranger who also found himself unwillingly walking in the way. Coming across the way by chance, he was astonished by the unruly procession, but out of compassion for Christ, found himself compelled to take up the cross and follow in the way. Then there were Christ's disciples that followed at a distance, sighing and crying, grieving in their hearts, because of the malignity of sin, ashamed because of their own abandonment of Christ and bewildered in their minds at the hypocritical, self-righteous, selfishness and pride of God's chosen people. Of those that walked that way out of duty, keeping the law and enjoining others to do so, only the centurion heard the voice of the Holy Spirit along the way and his heart was broken he like the rest expected to find death at the end of the way but to his surprise he found life the other soldiers whose hearts were hardened found only death the vast majority who walked in that way seeking to establish their own righteousness or seeking some advantage for themselves, found nothing but desolation and anguish of soul. Then there are those who know that the gate of anguish is before them, who walk in the way sorrowfully, in astonishment. They do not look forward at the end of the way to glory, nor personal advantage, but to give up all for the Master, to ignominity, to persecution and even death. They have not chosen the way, but he has chosen it for them. And they can do no other, because they must follow the Master whithersoever he goeth. Broken in heart, they enter the gate to come forth conquerors 
over self and sin. The vast majority of those who followed Jesus along the way that day perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Which class do you belong to? Are you one that those who follow the way to do your duty of keeping the law? Or to establish your self-righteousness? Or because of your friends and relatives? Or because you just happened to find yourselves in the way without having chosen it? Or do you follow penitently in astonishment and shame? While the world plunges headlong into the abyss of destruction, while its inhabitants are marrying and giving into marriage, while they are eating and drinking to their own damnation, while they are amalgamating themselves with beasts and erasing within themselves the image of God, while earth's inhabitants are absorbed with revelry and laughter and music, while the earth is filled with violence and oppression, God's people are walking along a narrow way. Soon, the path along the way will come to an abrupt end. Near the end of the way, there is an open door, a straight gate. Will you be one of the few that enters the gate while there is still time? Or do you think that your journey along the way is sufficient to enter into life? It will cost you everything you have to enter. Make haste while you still can before the gate is forever sealed shut.